In today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 17. One of the most famous events in the Bible, today we examine the account of David and Goliath. Armed with only a sling and a few stones and his faith and trust in God, David agrees to fight for Israel against the Philistines' own giant champion, Goliath. Almost everyone knows how David wins the day, but the question is, what does this tell us about Jesus? Good morning and blessed Eastertide. Today is Monday, May 22nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. I'd like to thank our sponsor this morning, the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. The Lutheran Heritage Foundation is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online to learn more about their translating and publishing work and how to get involved at lhfmissions.org. Well, please join me in welcoming my guest this morning to help us open up, discern, and divide 1 Samuel chapter 17. It's the Reverend David Duke, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and adjunct professor of Old Testament at Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Pastor Duke, welcome back to the program. Well, it's my pleasure, and I would be remiss if I didn't remind you that I'm also the pastor of St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York. I believe this happened so last have, time, uh... too. My apologies, Pastor. <laughs> uh, we'll make sure we get that updated, uh... but... Yes, absolutely. So, boy, you, right and as I think I might have said this last time, too, but you have your hands full, don't you? How are things going since we last talked? I, I do. Well, we have uh, uh, challenges, as you might expect, uh, down here below the escarpment uh, in the wonderful view of Niagara Falls. That's kind of the, the immediate context here. And, you know, uh, we have our, our things, but uh, the word of the Lord prevails, and we're working hard as the people of God to trust him and also to do what he says. It's great having a ball. Oh, that's great. You know, I've never been to Niagara Falls. I mean, it's it's sort of the old-fashioned uh, honeymoon capital. I don't know if it's that way anymore, but just a place that I've, I've been all over, but ne- never there yet. Is it worth the, uh, is worth the trip? Oh, absolutely. The Canadian side is the developed side, and that's where the, the honeymoon is. And uh, the American side is a, a nice state park and also... And also uh, a sort of quasi uh, museum of all the great, uh, what would you say, all the great manufacturing that once was uh, Western New York. Uh, you can kind of look at it in, in awe and wonder how the, the Niagara River powered uh, the engine of the American economy at one time right wow. here. It's, it really is wonderful, uh, even though it's a thing that's in the past now. Anybody going over those falls in barrels anymore or is that pretty illegal now? <laughs> I don't remember how legal or illegal it is, uh, but uh, no, and it's it as a wonder of the world and a natural wild thing. You know, people, uh, there's adventures, we'll say. Yeah, there there are adventures. It reminds me of the old Primus song, uh, going over the falls, waiting for your turn to go over, right? <laughs> well, brother, we have so much to get through today with our text. It's a very familiar one to people. It, it's very long so far as the text we normally conquer on this channel in an hour. Uh, but it's not the type that, you know, every little piece needs to be deciphered. It's very much a narrative. Uh, but still, with all the verses we have to get through, I think we should go ahead and get started. But before we do that, I invite you to start us off in prayer. Oh, good. Yes. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you that you give us many, many visions of your son, Jesus, in these great heroic stories of the Old Testament 
help us to understand that our Lord is for us and that Jesus has conquered all our enemies. And that enemy is death, uh, primarily on the cross. And this Easter, help us to celebrate it with this story of David defeating Goliath. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, before we read any of the text, though, it probably would be very wise to, for us to allow you to kind of set the stage, give us an expectation of basically where we've been, what we're going to see in this text. I think there might be a lot of um, unlearning that we might have to do because it is so familiar. It's so much in the culture of people who've never even picked up a Bible know about David and Goliath, or at least they think they do, uh, start us off uh, helping uh, disambiguate us. Oh, that's a, those are wonderful ways to uh, understand our understanding of it. I think, you know, we all learn this. If you, if you Even if you're a lifelong Christian, you learn this in, a, in, in kind of the American context of uh, religion and religiosity, I think is a good word for it. And sometimes we get some prejudices that kind of creep in and we kind of forget how the Old Testament actually works because it's a great standalone story, as you said. Uh, but it, uh, the Old Testament is the Old Testament and it's uh, governed – by our Lord Jesus himself as he reveals. And I think it's kind of cool. Here we are in the Easter season, and one of our very favorite Easter stories, of, co of course, is that day in the afternoon and evening when he's walking on the road to Emmaus. And in Luke chapter 24, it is revealed to us by our Lord, our resurrected Lord, that uh, we need to take seriously him in the Old Testament, because remember, they didn't have an Old Testament, then they had the Scriptures. Well, <laughs> they didn't have the New Testament, which meant they didn't have an Old Testament to, to uh, be governed, uh, and he's actually beginning this process after his resurrection uh, with these particular gentlemen, right, in the road to Emmaus. And he says to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And he's making a specific reference, and I don't want to get into too much or we'll never get to it, but he's making a specific reference to uh, synagogue uh, canon, how the Bible worked for them. And uh, one of the things that has to be understood right now is that First Samuel is considered one of the prophets. And so when we look at a story like uh, David and Goliath or David and Bathsheba, the bad stories and the good stories together – you still have a picture of Jesus, and he says it is necessary that the Son of Man suffer at the hands of sinful men, be crucified, die, and rise again on the third day. And so when we read any of these things in the, in the Old Testament, we're actually looking for that, and in specific, a repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's basically uh, repeated, uh, uh, I think, four times, maybe five in Luke chapter 24, that very thing. So when we're reading David and Goliath, we're trying to put away a prejudice that is uh, – and this is a little bit of a balderization, and I don't mean to hurt anybody's feelings, but we're not looking at that story to teach us to pray real hard so that God will defeat the giants of our life. You know, What we are trying to do is to look at the salvation God has won for us in his anointed one. So when you put yourself into the story, you're not really supposed to put yourself in as David. You're supposed to put yourself in as one of David's brothers or one of the soldiers who's being mocked by this giant, this insurmountable giant, um, and uh, understanding that Goliath stands in the place of that dark force that Jesus took on on the cross. 
It, these are pictures for us to help us understand that. And with that, I'll hand it back over to you and see what you yeah, want to well, do. Well, I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about everything you're saying, and boy, it is true. The misuse of Scripture to personalize it where we basically place ourselves in the in the place of the Messiah it happens all the time, even with the Good Samaritan and so many other parables of Jesus. And while there are certainly mm-hmm. truths that, you know, God will help us overcome obstacles according to his will, it, it's so it's so uh, disingenuous to to make ourselves the champion all the time because as you as you clearly pointed out Christ is the champion and, and I'm thinking of the road to Emmaus and the scriptures say that and starting with the prophets or the apostles or something like that he he goes and he explains all things concerning himself and it's sort of an old joke but boy it, it just hits home I always think boy if only we could have been there for that bible study but it sounds like that you might chastise me if I were to say that and say we are there. This is what we're guy. This is it. This is the Bible study he gave them. <laughs> yeah, this is actually it, right? Exactly. This is how you do it, and it and it clarifies. It, it's not easy, right. and that's I think that's what makes it so um, that we don't do it because it's just it's hard. It's really really hard to look at this and say, well, that's a picture of Jesus. Like, wait, that's that's a that's a shepherd boy. Well. Yeah, and Jesus calls himself the good shepherd, and, and it is, all that stuff begins to link together that that even that imperfect and very sinful David is a picture for us of the good shepherd. Uh, and you can see the John 10, uh, the John 10 discourse being basically lived out right in front of you when you read David and Goliath. There it is. Well, let's do that. Let's read. Let's start to read David and Goliath. I'm going to read the first 11 verses of chapter 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah in Ephes Damamin. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail, and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed six hundred shekels of iron. And his shield-bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves, and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. And when Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. So, brother, from a practical standpoint, just a historical standpoint, this wouldn't have been too uncommon for armies to meet up and kind of see, okay, this is this is going to end with a lot of bloodshed. Why don't we just each send a guy and and sort of as a a little proxy war and whoever wins will win, although the stakes weren't generally as high as they're making them here. Um, I guess give us an idea of what's going on here in, in terms of what's happening on the ground. 
Yeah, there's some evidence for that. Uh, I, I wonder about the the uh, the actual practice that, you know, when your champion does get killed and there, I mean, like we're going to see, there is an onslaught uh, in a battle anyway. But the, I guess there's maybe a tacit agreement that, well, if this guy wins, then then yeah, we'll submit that kind of thing. I, and I wonder if a lot of it has to do with taxation and also just I, I don't want to die. Uh, if the Philistines, you know, like if you're on the border there, if the Philistines win, uh, okay, guess I'll I'll pay taxes to to that guy then, and that's good enough for me. Or vice versa, the Philistines on the border there are like, well, you know, if it happens to be Saul who whose champion wins, then I, I guess I can pay taxes to him. I'd rather do that than die. So there's like a test of like the will of the armies when you send the champion out. But I, I really do wonder about the actual practice. Now, there's a couple of other things, too. Uh, let's do just a little bit in terms of Bronze Age, Bronze Age discussion, because there is some, some, some significance here, and namely that this is the late Bronze Age, and bronze is a pretty good um, – a pretty good uh, – what's that called when you have two metals put together? An alloy. What's that? Uh, alloy. It's a pretty good alloy, right, for shielding, and there's a big – you know, big. He had a helmet of bronze on his head and coat of mail, weight of a coat, and all, and all that kind of stuff. What the Philistines had, apparently from their uh, wealth, being uh, kind of in with the Phoenicians um, and the Sea Peoples, and also all the technologies of the Mediterranean, is they had iron, and iron shatters bronze. And the the Israelites were still working out the technology of iron. And so when you see that thing, the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shackles of iron. That's like having a nuclear weapon as opposed to just standard warfare. He could break chariots with that shackle – or sorry, with that iron uh, spearhead. That, that's a big deal. So you couldn't even get close to him. He would smash your armor and kill you just by himself. And so that's why he had such – he had such currency as a champion <laughs> is if you're going to run at him with a bunch of bronze, he's going to just break your stuff. Like if they had you. to pick one guy, the, the, he's the guy. <laughs> this is his main yeah, job. He can, yeah, because he can carry that much iron on the tip of a spear. Uh, and well, just I think we'd be remiss in yeah. not at least discussing the, the giant aspect of Goliath. So, you know, I guess the text here will tell us that he is uh, six cubits in a span, so like nine and a half feet tall or so. But the Septuagint yeah. and some other sources, and Josephus even, uh, makes him like six foot something. So like six and a half feet. Yeah, it's it's one of those great things like uh, the old Bill Cosby line when he's talking to Noah or Noah's talking to God. What's a cubit? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it depends on how you, you measure a cubit. If you want them to be super big, you have the biggest possible cubit that's allowable. And if you want them to be just sort of average, you know, just bigger than everybody else, he's your cubit is going to be really small. There's there's a lot of debate about it. It it seems reasonable though that that the guy right. was a big guy. He was he was actually big, you know, a giant. Like they wouldn't call him a giant if he wasn't a giant. And a giant isn't sort of like uh, con contextual. It's like, no, that guy was really big because uh, Saul was a right. tall guy. And so was uh, – well, David maybe not full-grown yet, but Saul was certainly tall. He was a head taller than everybody else. And so if you look at Goliath and say, well, that's a giant, well, okay, he's big. And we, I think we found uh, – we find um, in, in uh, that region uh, skeletons of guys who were just big. I'm speaking a little out of turn. 
And I, I think one of the problems with them uh, was that they were a dying race, you know, and there's all, and man, when you start stepping into that, your genetics and stuff like that, and we're not talking about Christ <laughs> anymore, <laughs> you know, but you do have to take into account, look, the Bible says he was well, a Well, and giant, I don't want to so... allegorize it either, but at the same time, if you take yeah. an exceptionally large man and then slap on all this armor and giant weaponry and even a tall helmet, perhaps, I mean— with a feather right, on top, exactly. yeah. But no, even so, though, yeah. you know, an imposing force, again, I, I don't think it's hyperbolic. I think this guy was considerably larger in such a way that the Bible is obviously true when it says he's a giant. But I'm just saying yeah. appearances also matter. Here's this gigantic force that's coming up against them, and that's obviously going to stand in contrast to to David. Right. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that's that wonderful... I defy you. Give me a man. And then the, the next verse is going to be, you know, well, well, hold on to that for just a second, because I think we need to make a connection here, too, for the story to make sense. The first Samuel 17, the translation, by the way, I'm an Old Testament professor, so I can't let this go. The translation sort of shows a break between 16 and 17, uh, chapter 16 and 17, and there really isn't. It's a continuation the, 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 it's very clearly in order. It's ordinated, so to speak, not ordained, but it's like in order with the business of God taking the spirit away from Saul and replacing that Holy Spirit with an evil spirit. I don't know if you did you did chapter 16 beforehand or not, but that's where we get the wonderful song, Little David, Play on Your Harp, because that's where David is introduced to Saul as a harpist that can drive away that evil spirit that comes from God which is just one of the most remarkable images we have because it confuses us about God on the one hand. And on, a, on the other hand, here we have again David, the anointed one, who is able to drive away evil spirits. And next scene, here's David showing up with this, I love how you did that, this gigantic image of an enemy. Not only is he physically imposing, but he is by sight imposing the shining bronze, and they do. They have little feathers. They have in their in their helmets. They have little spots for feathers, so it makes them even taller, right, and colorful. It's just a a, a brilliant, uh, a, a fiery kind of uh, uh, image because the sun's going to reflect off of all that bronze and that color. So you're you are going to cower in front of the guy because he's more he's bigger than life in in every way imaginable. He's a force, uh, as Paul kind of refers to it or alludes to it, at least with these, uh, what do you call them? The forces of the powers of the air, right? Mm -hmm. The powers of the air. He's, he's a physical representation of these powers that suddenly manifest and are the enemies of the people of God. Why don't we add some more text to it? So we're going to read verses 12 through... We're just... Yep. Give me yeah, a let's man. Just keep, let's just keep reading until, uh, until it seems natural to stop. Here we go. Now David was the son of an Ephrathite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. The three oldest of the sons of Jesse had followed Saul to the battle. And the names of his three sons who went to the battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah. David was the youngest the three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. For forty days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David his son, 
Take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves, and carry them quickly to the camp to your brothers. And also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well, and bring them some, and bring some token from them. Now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took the provisions and went, as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the encampment as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army. And David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brothers. As he talked with them, Behold, the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, came up out of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard them. And all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were very much afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he has come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. And David said to the men who stood by him, What shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? And the people answered him in the same way, So shall it be done to the man who kills him. That's the end of verse 17. Um, 27. Uh, oh, pardon me, yes, thank you, 27. Uh Let's start into that. That's a long uh, passage of narrative, but basically... Yeah, send me a man, and then here's David. Yeah, a little boy, right? He's, I mean, he's cast as a little boy here. I think, not a little boy, but as a boy, not definitely not presented as a champion warrior, right? That's the whole picture. What's interesting about this, and I'm sure many of your hearers picked up on it and maybe sort of set it in there somewhere because it's not, it doesn't sound right here, but it's that 40 days thing. And in fact, it's done on purpose, I believe anyway. I don't I don't know who the author of 1 Samuel was, and I think he's dead by now, mm -hmm. and so we can't actually ask him. <laughs> but I think he did this on purpose, and that is the imagery we have right here as evoked by the 40 days is an image of the Exodus. And if you think about the elements of the Exodus, so they've just left Egypt, and they're pinned against the Red Sea by the Egyptian army. And the Pharaoh, kind of corresponding to Goliath, is your superhero king who's coming to kill them all, sent his army to kill them all. And they cry out, uh, why have you brought us out here into the wilderness? And we know that the wilderness is gonna be a 40-year trial. We also know that the 40-year trial corresponds and is governed by, I'm gonna use that word governed by, is governed by the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness by the champion of the bad guys, mm -hmm. Satan, right? So you have that echo over and over again. It's, I call it recursion. It's like when you look into the mirror, uh, when you're trying on clothes at the department store, if you do that anymore, and you can kind of, if you look into that one that's at an angle, you can see yourself going forever into the right. mirror. You can see these recursions, especially the Exodus. The Exodus is the controlling historical event of the entire Bible. Uh, it lasts all the way into Revelation, the notion of seas and death and things coming up and to destroy you. And God sends a champion to to save you and Moses being the champion in the Exodus, right? Uh, and Jesus being, of course, the champion in the wilderness. A mighty fortress is our God. We sing that hymn every uh, Temptation Sunday. 
uh, you have that here. And the and, and another thing about that image is they're pinned uh, and at the Exodus. They're pinned by the army of the Egyptians. And you have this wonderful, uh, wonderful moment. It gets lost because there's such a complex and wonderful story. But this wonderful moment you have the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, which is leading the people of Israel. It moves with the glory of God. It moves from the front, so basically at the edge of the water, to the back. And it call in the Bible calls it the army of Israel there, right? The people are the army of Israel. It moves to the back and lights up the whole night with its darkness, which is just the coolest thing. How does darkness light up the night? I don't know, but it did. And it separated the armies of the armies of Israel from the armies of the Egyptians all night long, right? And you have the same thing here, kind of, it's it's not exactly the same, but you see that David went back and forth, back and forth, and he's sort of like in the presence of the people of Israel, and then he hears this, and he has this thing, his speech, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of Israel? He is basically standing in the place of that, of that pillar of fire and pillar of cloud. He's going to be the one to move from kind of the edge over here, going back and forth to his father and his brothers, to between the armies of Israel and the armies of the Philistines to separate them out. That's the, if you kind of add that with that 40 days thing, hey, wait a second, what's that? You had it right. It's the Exodus, it's the temptation, it's Jesus versus Satan, it's David versus Goliath, it's Moses, God, really, remember, it's not Moses, it's God. It's Moses versus Pharaoh and Pharaoh's army. And you you already know the ending without having to know the ending. If you've never, ever heard the story of David and Goliath, but, but you know the story of the Exodus and you know the story of the temptation of the devil, you know exactly how this is going to end without it being told anymore. Because I've already told you, this is about Jesus. Anyways, I'm getting kind of uh, right. excited over here, man, because this oh, is such a great story. So well. <laughs> and I, I forget, did we cover up the young, did we cover the youngest? No, yet? not yet. I forget. Did you read that part? Or I is that, have read it. Yes. Yet to come. Okay. Now we need to wait, first before you read more. I'll let you ask. Me <laughs> well, some I do have a couple, questions. and one, and I don't want Go to ahead. derail um, either your excitement or the great image that you're <laughs> making for us. Uh, but I am a little curious. It, it seems that some of the motivation David has, at least from a human standpoint, right? Because David's just a guy. Is he's about these rewards? How does that connect? Like, like what's going to happen to the man who? Uh, kills or gets this, you know, gets this Philistine, and he says, you know, who who's daring to defy the armies of the living God, which of course is this amazing statement of faith. And the people tell him, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. So there seems to be this idea that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and give him his daughter and make his father's house free. That seems to be appealing to David in the narrative, at least in part, or am I misreading it? Oh man, that I'd never heard that before, but I got to tell you, I was at a pastor's conference just this past week and a question came up concerning Philippians about the father, right? And somebody says, well, what about the father? Is the father revealed like the son is revealed? And I'm sitting there as the Old Testament professor and I you know, didn't want to steal any thunder, mm -hmm. but I thought about it and I went up to the guy who was, it was uh, another professor, uh, uh, Jeff Kloa who was doing the presentation and I, and I went up to him and I said, you know, I think the father is in the Old Testament in the same way that the son is. It's typological, right? And we see it and, I'm, and you're anticipating another thing I'm doing here. 
we see it very clearly at the end of Genesis when Joseph rises to the right hand of the Pharaoh, right? And we have it in our creeds. He ascended to the right hand of the Father, right? And it's a wonderful image of Pharaoh who never speaks in Genesis, uh, never speaks, but here's this son of Jacob, right? The son of, and the brother, all these brothers rising and is from the midst of the Israelites, sits at the right hand of the Pharaoh and feeds the whole world. And here you have something very much the same. Here's the king and whoever kills Goliath, this enemy of the people of God, will basically be next to the king in wealth and, and power, right? And we, we do that a lot, right? I think it's, it's – I forget if that's in Philippians. No, just did the Bible study and I can't remember. Uh, the, uh, the, he, he considered himself nothing, right? He emptied himself and uh, he went to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, he is – his name is the highest. I wish I could quote Philistines better, uh, but that's that's the thing now. And at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And I think that's – we have that. It's, again, typological, meaning it's not obvious. It's just something you have to do if you're trying to be true to what Jesus actually instructs us to do, and that is this is about him. Okay, so what about these riches? Well, go defeat the great enemy, and you not only get raised from the dead, but you get seated at the right hand of the Father. And I think in our in, in our lectionary series, uh, we're in A, we just did the, the stoning of Philip, Stephen. Right. <laughs> The stoning of Stephen, and he looks and sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, and it made them so enraged, right? So you you kind of see the same thing with David and David and um, and uh, King Saul, which is very interesting because again, King Saul is is obviously not the father, but he stands in his place here in this narrative. Fascinating stuff, but you know what? We're gonna have to take a break, so folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Duke and I will keep on going through First Samuel seventeen. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend David Duke, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and of St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York. He's also the adjunct professor of Old Testament at Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Folks, thanks for gathering around God's Word with us this morning. If you have any questions or comments about today's show or just want to say hello, you can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Just stop by, say hello. And if you like Thy Strong Word, why not share it with others who might also like it? The program airs on AM850 in St. Louis, or you can stream it live or on demand at kfuo.org, 
or on the KFUO app or on your favorite podcasting service. There's so many different ways that you can grow in your faith with me and my guests every weekday. Well, Pastor, back to it. So we have quite a ways to go. It's worth getting some more text under our belt and hear how we can connect them to Jesus. I am fascinated so far with our conversation. I'm going to go ahead and pick up with verse 28. Here we go. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men. And Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. And David said, What have I done now? Was it not but a word? And he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. I actually want to pause there. It's only just a couple more verses. But earlier, you know, we'd already read that David is the younger of the brothers. Three of them are out on the battlefield. And it just seems like David can't get a break <laughs> because he, he's gone there, of course, on his dad's instruction and command. He certainly says these things. Uh, he's he's indignant at what's going on. Um, and then why is Eliab so upset with him? Well, I, I don't really know. Um, I think there's envy here because David uh, – I wonder – they were witnesses. Uh, they uh, Eliab and his brothers were witnesses of the anointing of David. Mm, that's right. And that seems to play a, a strong role in the typology of the Christ as, as, as well. We see that, again, very clearly in the little bratty Joseph. Now, Joseph was clearly a brat. He even his own, his own father said, hey, you know, don't say those things, you know. <laughs> and, uh, but he couldn't help it because he's, got, he's prepossessed by these dreams. And then his brothers, out of envy, basically um, – uh, well, basically sell him into slavery and tell his father that they, he was murdered. You have almost – uh, of course, uh, not almost. It, it corresponds very strongly to David's experience with his own brothers in the gospel according to St. John, which is really interesting because you have the, the actual blood kin and blood relationships that Jesus has. And this is in the synoptic gospels as well, but it's only like one one thing when uh, Mary and his brothers come to fetch Jesus because he thought he'd lost his mind. And he says, go and tell my mother my brothers – these are my mother and my brothers, whoever hears my word and keeps it. And it's it's sort of like we kind of gloss over that because we think of Jesus as a good little boy, you know, good little mother's boy. But he's, that's uh, uh, really kind of harsh. And the same thing is introduced already with uh, in John's gospel in chapter 2 at the, uh, the wedding at Cana where his mother says they're out of wine. And he says, woman – what what does that have to do with me? Basically, what about, what am I to you? Kind of thing, and then it progresses all the way through the Gospel of John and this interaction with his brothers, who also at least don't understand him, but also hate him and are envious of him. And then he's transforming all that blood kinship to water kinship in his own blood baptism, right? And so he stands up and he says to Mary, or Martha. Names. I'm so sorry about names. Martha, or not Mary. It's Mary Magdalene. At the end. He says, go and tell my brothers, right, that I'm ascending to my father and your father, my God and your God. So you have this brothership thing that goes on all the way through with Jesus, and it's here with David, and it's apparent in uh, the Joseph story. Those, those two big 
types of Jesus, where you just can't get away from wow. uh, Jesus with David and, and Joseph. Well, I think that's very striking. Let's, uh, let's keep reading into the narrative some more. I'm going to pick up a 31. When the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul, and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth, and he has been a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father, and when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, Yahweh, who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and Yahweh be with you. And then Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail, and David strapped his sword over his armor. And he tried to go in vain, for he had not tested them. Then David said to Saul, I cannot go with these, for I have not tested them. So David put them off. Then he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook, put them in his shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. So, yeah, so Saul, the King Saul gets word that there's some kid on the front line saying he'll take him. And Saul's like, oh, I bet I know who this is. And he calls him back yep. and chastises him. Um, but I don't know, for good reason. If I were king, I would be probably saying the exact same thing. Like, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're just a kid. Absolutely. And this is, again, this is, uh, this is a very strong figure of Christ when he says to Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were of this world, my servants would be fighting so that I would not be delivered over, right? And so we even have the, the armaments of this world, which, by the way, weren't going to do any good anyway because they're bronze and that 600 shekel iron spear was just going to crush it. So it, 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 this is not a battle of this world. And David intrinsically knows that. I think according to his anointing, he, he knows this. And he's like, I, I just need my shepherd stuff, which, by the way, that we can't we, – we're missing that too. I, I, I'm not We are not missing, but like it, let's not ignore it. The shepherd thing again, right? It's, right. it's uh, right in Saul's face because he's supposed to be a shepherd and he's not. And that's what got him the evil spirit from God to begin with. And that it keeps showing up in the prophets that you're a shepherd. This is a big deal with Ezekiel, right? You shepherds, and Zechariah mentions it as well. Moses was a shepherd. When he escaped from Egypt, he was a shepherd for his, his father-in-law for 40 years, right? So you have that strong shepherd thing. What well, what is this? This is not of shepherds don't become kings, right? It's about the what what kind of a kingdom is this? Well, it's a it's a shepherd kingdom, and it's very clear. I mean, it's 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 being made clear to the people who read this or experienced this, and to us that this is about a shepherd who cares for his sheep, as as the bear and the lion were to me. So this uncircumcised Philistine will be to me too. No big deal, right? <laughs> Yahweh delivered the bear into my hands. 
Yahweh's going to deliver this loud mouth giant into my hands. Big whoop. And they don't get it because it's all about power, right? It, it, it's it's obviously about to them. It's all it's about power and armaments and treaties, and it's not. It's about Yahweh and His shepherd. Well, and I and love. It, I just love that language of deliverance, though, because in thirty five, you know, David says, "I delivered it." That's that lamb that's been oh, taken yeah. out of the flock. I delivered it out of his mouth, and then of course he rightly says, "Yahweh delivered me from the enemies." So he's delivering. The, the sheep out of the enemy's mouth, and Yahweh is delivering him out of the claws of the enemy. Man, how um, much more New testament can you get, right? Exactly, right? And God raised this Jesus, whom you crucified, from the dead. Like, wow. Yeah, it's, it's thrilling, isn't it? Well, and, it, and, and, I, and of course, I'm not trying to be too judgmental, but then it also frustrates me when we get to, say, the Christ narrative, and we have the shepherds being involved there, and then I hear the explanation sometimes from pastors of, well, you see, they were the marginalized, outcast people, and this is an example of Jesus being for all people. <laughs> well, he could have picked almost anybody else. <laughs> right. But there's something really important being said here. And, what a and, and coincidence, what yeah. What a coincidence. It would be the shepherds, yeah. The whole, the whole model of his, of his kingdom is shepherd. You know, from the right. beginning, the model has been, with Moses, has been shepherd. Well, let's read a little bit more because I just, I love, oh, and actually I have one more question for you, and that is, so Saul lays upon him all of these these worldly uh, weapons and, and, and protect, uh, protecting things like the coat of mail and, of course, the, the, uh, the, the helmet and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I wonder, just reading it as, I guess, a story, I, it seems like perhaps Saul's motivation in loading him up was to further convince him that he couldn't go. He says, uh, sure, you can go. And then he dresses up the little boy. I know he's not a little boy, but he dresses up the boy in real men's armament just to sort of prove a point. I, I don't know. Am I reading too much into it? I, I, it's one of those that's, that's, I think is good, but I don't know how to, you wouldn't I don't know how to really it. react to it because it's probably <laughs> right. I mean, that, that if I were Saul, and I, I think that that would be a, a motivation, right? Look, yeah. kid, come on. You know, here, try to – you can't even move around in these. Don't do not do this. Man, don't – I'm going to have to answer to your father, you know? I suppose. Yeah, why not? Well, if that is the motivation, then I just think it, it makes for uh, it makes for great storytelling that David it then does. casts them off and says, no, nope, this is all I need. Yeah, absolutely. So this is what happens then. So he takes his sling, and he has a couple rocks, and he approaches the Philistine, picking up with verse 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David – with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Then the Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day Yahweh will deliver you into my hand, and I will strike you down and cut off your head, and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth, 
that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel, and that all this assembly may know that Yahweh saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is Yahweh's, and he will give you into our hand. Obviously, great place to stop. Yeah. So just, uh, I don't know. I mean, you just kind of get, if all you've ever heard was the Sunday school David and Goliath story and not recognized the historical account, but also the spiritual connection between this and God's activity in our, um, in our history, then you're going to miss just how amazing what David is doing here really is. Yeah, remember earlier how you, you asked about like the champion thing and I said that's kind of sketchy because maybe it worked and maybe they did it. But historically, it's kind of hard to see that it actually was practiced. And this is exa- – I mean David just calls the whole thing off, right? Uh, not only am I going to kill you and chop your head off. I don't remember coloring that in the coloring book when I was seven years old. <laughs> right. I'm going to chop your head off and the birds of the air are going to feed on the armies of the Philistines. I, I think the champion thing is off, right? That we're not going to do the champion thing. Not only am I going to kill you, but I'm going to kill every one of you, right? This kid, you know, he couldn't wear the armor. This kid, I mean, what a boast. And also I think it's really important how barbaric this business is of God's kingdom. It is bloody. And it's not just ancient Near Eastern. I think this is really a call to American Christians. Look, we have it easy. If you leave the environs of religious liberty of Europe and, and North America, even just just uh, uh, United States and Canada, if you get out of those environs, you are in a dangerous place when you're a Christian. Right. You know, I, I, I uh, have the opportunity and the blessing, the great blessing to have been with uh, – to have taught um, men from uh, Africa the the languages and, uh, you know, a little bit of Old Testament. Like I could be their teacher because I remember one guy came to class one day and he was just glazed over. I thought he was drunk. Like what are you doing? Pete. His name was Pete. What are you doing here? I, I was kind of upset with him and somebody says, hey, uh, Pastor Duke or Professor Duke, uh, he just found out three of his brothers – were pulled off a in Sudan. Were pulled off a bus and murdered, wow. uh, mown down with a gun. Like, oh, geez, you know. And I said, Peter, go home, go home and mourn your brothers. Do you need any? I mean, just shamed. I was ashamed because I have it so easy, yep. right? It's bloody business. It is a violent, violent uh, opposition to the kingdom of God everywhere, but my, you know, backyard essentially, right? <laughs> and your backyard, right? We, well, you know, I feel like this is a call. I mean, I'm making four missions. Look, this is really, really hard. They burn churches down everywhere else in the world all the time, even in Canada now, I guess, and Norway and other uh, fringe places in the northern hemisphere. But obviously, you've got some really hard things that happened in this century in Russia, China, all over Africa, South America. You know, it's a violent, violent place, and this is this is part of it. it's bloody, awful, evil business that God is at. Uh, not that He's evil, but that He is He is working in an evil world in a bloody, evil world. And it, that cross thing was not pretty either. The the thing with the the crucifixion, Golgotha, the place of a skull where our salvation is worked out. That was awful. Well, you you joked about you know never coloring the. Uh... <laughs> the 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 more graphic aspects of what's going on here, and I was going to say 
You know, well, it, yeah, it's in the same coloring book as the Noah's Ark with all the corpses floating in the water around the ark. <laughs> yeah, right. You know, there is a reality that we have, have uh, I don't know what the word is. We but sanitize we, it, right? Yes, yeah, sanitize, infantilized. We made it so um, just palatable to—and of course children need to be taught in, ch- in age-appropriate ways, so I'm not right, saying right, that, right. folks. But what I am saying is— at some point, you leave the milk and you start eating the meat, and you have to realize just what the pastor is saying here: that that this that because of our sins, death is the is the punishment, and that's what we see. And we see God exercising His judgment throughout history. And yeah, this is God exercising a judgment through David against this Philistine. He raised up Saul to conquer the Philistines, but as uh, Pastor Duke has been saying. It points to the greater, the greater judgment and the greater salvation and deliverance we get from Jesus. But it's still bloody. You're bloody, yeah. I was thinking. I mean, we we I just alluded to the recent. We did uh, the stoning of Stephen, and coming up I, in the is the the beheading of James. Right. These devastating moments. Just imagine if you were in that church, and the the, the you get the news that that uh, Stephen has been stoned. And then a few – sometime later, James has been beheaded. What a, how it would rock your, your community. This is horrible. Where is God, right? Well, there's, this is the kingdom of God, and Jesus even says so, right, about John the Baptist and his beheading. And um, uh, this is uh, the, the judgment that's coming, uh, the typological judgment that came against Jerusalem after Jesus ascended, you know, in 72 AD and how it's part of – the kingdom, the spread of the kingdom up until the very last day, and that those very difficult words of Jesus about the end of the world. Right? It's very difficult, especially to Christians who've been raised up to believe that, um, not that God is love, because the scriptures say that God is love, but that love is God, which is not the truth. And God shows his love for us through that bloody sacrifice of Christ, and we have to see all things through that. Yeah. Well, I'm going to keep reading because now we're going to see the judgment that gets uh, measured and meted against the Philistine. Here we go. When the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and he took out a stone and he slung it and he struck the Philistine on his forehead. The The stone sank into his forehead and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of its sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. When the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron, so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sha'arim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines, and they plundered their camp. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem. But he put his armor in his tent. As soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, As your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, Inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from the striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him, brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, 
whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse the Bethlehemite. That ends our chapter. But mm-hmm. why, So they, they meet toe-to-toe, and of course I think it gets quoted often, but I just love it. David runs yeah. toward the battlefield, toward the battle. I, I don't know. You know. There's a lot of people who, who run their mouths, uh, may even seem brave, may even seem faithful, but when you know the time comes, they, they cower away. And who would blame them? But David doesn't. He runs yep. toward the Philistine. It's it's oh, I mean, you just let it sink in. Well, that's uh, a little pun. Uh, boy, howdy, right? And um, I you, the head there. There's an anticipation in the text that he took the head and sent it to Jerusalem. Hadn't been conquered yet. Jerusalem was a long way from being conquered. We have to go through the whole thing with David versus Saul, and then David has to conquer Jerusalem, and that that way he does. So it's anticipating that David kept the head of the Philistine as a token, as a as a um, trophy, which just goes to show it is a barbaric thing at work here. Because who we 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 hear about this from World War II, the Japanese front, where soldiers sent back shrunken heads of Japanese people they'd killed. This is exactly what he did, and he kept it as a token. And I think it had to do with certain debates. You know, I, <laughs> notorious for this one. <laughs> what did? <laughs> Why did he keep it? Well, when there was a, a an argument going on in the court of David about what to do next, about you know some policy, probably foreign policy, and there was an uh, uh, you know strong opposition to what David wanted to do, he just said, "Well, you know, let's ask Goliath. <laughs> Goliath, what do you think?" It's a reminder that David is the king, right? He's the anointed one. <laughs> so, oh, 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 that's right, David. That's right. I'm sorry. It, whatever you say, King, uh, King David. Right, and so that that's how the the thing worked. But he kept it with him, and he it, uh, the plunder he kept the it was his to keep. Right, he kept this these trophies for himself: the bronze armor and the and the the sword and the and the head of the, of the Philistine. He kept them, and it's a nobody. Right, it's a nobody now. There's some debate because 16, he's playing the harp for Saul, and how could how could Saul not know it? Well, there's there's a, a is a parallel. It's a way of telling a story in parallel, and that's that's complicated. And I won't go into that, but just understand it's it's two stories happening at the same time, but you can't tell two stories at the same time. Uh, it, it just doesn't, you know, we don't our brains don't work that way. So this is how you do it anyway. But you you do have that. He's a nobody. Well, Jesus from don't we know him and his father Joseph from Nazareth? Who is right, this guy? Right. Exactly. You know, and so it's ex- the exact. It's so close to the parallel, and they will call him a Nazar a Nazarene. They, nobody really knows what that means. I think that's what that that is. Uh, it's not Nazir from Branch. Even me an Isaiah guy. It's just it means nobody, right? He's a nobody. They will, they'll call him a nobody. Well, he was a nobody. At least that's one way of looking at it. Uh, and I, this is exact. I mean, who is this? As the I don't know. I don't. It's just what a great light moment. I think as your soul lives, O King. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's like yeah, didn't you? Yeah, didn't you, you? That's that kid you sent out. I don't know yeah, who he was. It's kind of Miney Python esque, where you've got the slaughter of the giant, and the head coming off, and people chasing and, and death everywhere, and and you got this uh, thing. Who is this kid? <laughs> don't know. Well, and, wow. Well, and you, you brought up, you know, later on and but of course here I just I love the imagery too. 57 as soon as David returned from striking down, you know, uh, Goliath here, Abner took him, brought him before Saul, 
with the head of the Philistine in his hand. Yeah. So he's dragging it around. Yeah. And so he comes, and if we try to envision how big this thing would be, it's probably a quarter the size of David. I'm just yeah. obviously just guessing. <laughs> but, right. you know, and whose son are you? And I guess David couldn't have been any more clear except to have said, I'm the son of the living God, which of course yeah, would right. be blasphemous. <laughs> right. But, whose son are you? Yeah. Right. Well, but he done. obviously says his dad, but, you know, this is pointing for, and I see here a little bit of uh, Jesus and Pontius Pilate, you know, a little questioning here. Got a lot. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's, you could dig and dig and dig and never really get to an end of the typology here. And there's a wonderful, the questioning and answering where he comes from, who's, What's going on? The kingdom not of this world. The yeah, right. whose son are you? What are you? What exactly is this? What happened? You got the. I just wonder what trophy Jesus kept, right? What trophy did he? Keep? If this is truly typological, that he's got, he's drag, <laughs> dragging the head of a giant around. What trophy does Jesus have? Well, we don't have that picture, I don't think. And I, I wonder if that's one of the things that that really isn't typological, right? I, that I'm the whole searching. thing gets swallowed up, and we yeah. basically have just Jesus. I yeah, I think I'm searching my brain, and I think the the trophy is it, yeah, it's it's all it's all combined because yeah, you know the, the head represents the defeated foe, um, sin is the defeated foe, death is the defeated foe. So I suppose it, the fact that that David is able to drag around uh, the head of Goliath, Jesus is able to walk out of the tomb and and be alive. And I think that would good be enough. as close as I can think. Yeah, well, I'll tell you what, enough. we're actually toward the end of our program, although I've enjoyed it immensely. What are some uh, last thoughts that you want to give the folks before we wrap up? Your salvation has been won for you, and all you had to do is stand there and watch. That's one. The other one is don't be afraid of the gory details. This is this is life as it is on this side of the grave. Uh, be aware of those who suffer for the faith, because it, it it is it's everywhere in the Bible. We we know that it is violently opposed, and that God moves the armies in, in according to His will. Not that we are violent, because Jesus commands us strictly not to be violent in our. Right. Uh, in our faith, but that there is violence everywhere the kingdom of God is. And the, the more powerfully it is proclaimed, the more powerfully it is resisted. But your salvation has already been won. Beautifully put. Folks, I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend David Duke, pastor of Concordia Lutheran Church in Newfane, New York, and of St. John Lutheran Church in Youngstown, New York. He's also the adjunct professor of Old Testament at Concordia Lutheran Theological Seminary in St. Catharines, Ontario. Uh, thank you, Pastor, for being on the show again. It was great. Thanks for inviting me. Folks, tomorrow we turn the page to chapter 18, and we start to see some conflict between Saul and David, as you might think. Da uh, Saul, David, rather, becomes a great hero in Israel after killing Goliath. Uh, but at the same time, David also becomes close friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. And there's a lot to dig into to, uh, into that chapter, so be sure to join us for that. But until then, I just say, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.